Well, this morning we're beginning our study in the Gospel according to John, sometimes referred to as the fourth Gospel. You know there are four Gospels. It's written by the John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. He's often referred to as John the Evangelist in order to differentiate him from John the Baptist, who we're going to read about this morning. This John is also the author of the three letters from John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and also the revelation to John. He's an eyewitness to Jesus' earthly ministry, but he never refers to himself by name in, in the gospel. Instead, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is probably writing from Ephesus around 80 to 85 AD, although that's disputed. It makes sense to me for his gospel to have come after the three synoptic gospels, which were written much earlier than that. His revelation is written probably in 90 to 95 AD, which leaves time in between for John to write, write his letters, his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I think John's initial audience was Jewish, although that also is, is disputed. It makes sense to me because John's presentation of Jesus is grounded in the Old Testament. He writes of Old Testament signs that Jesus fulfills. And he points to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament feasts which celebrate the work of God to Israel. But by God's grace, this morning we are now John's audience, as we take up and read. And John states the purpose for his writing in chapter 20, verse 31. He says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's always nice when an author tells us, this is why I'm reading. This is what I'm writing for. Now, no doubt, John wants unbelievers to start believing in Jesus and for believers to continue believing him. Jim Hamilton says that John's gospel is like a symphony studied centuries after its creation. Its melodies and harmonies charm those who hear only the surface while astounding those who explore its depths. John's gospel's like that. And its depths begin in chapter 1, verse 1. This is, this is very unlike the beginning of the other Gospels. Matthew slowly wades in to his Gospel narrative with a long genealogy that identifies Jesus as having come from Abraham. Luke slowly wades in and goes back a little bit further, tracing Jesus' long lineage back to Adam. But John dives right into the deep end. He dives right into creation, and we're going to dive in with him this morning. Find John chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read the first 18 verses. This is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, 
And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, John's gospel, frankly, begins like a bomb going off. Jesus is God. John says, <laughs> no, no wading in, no long genealogy, and, and no long fuse either, no fuse at all, just a bomb. Jesus is God. John begins his gospel with the same language that begins the Bible. You see that right off the bat, don't you? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. So John is intentionally linking his gospel word, the gospel of Christ, to the creation word. He's linking the two together. And he's connecting Jesus and God the Father in the same time. And we know he's talking about Jesus because he names this word who became flesh in verse 17. Jesus Christ. Everyone reading John's, John's gospel knows how the Bible begins. Everybody who's reading this letter that John has distributed knows how the Bible begins. Everyone knows that in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. But John does something different, doesn't he? John puts the word in the place where God goes. That is like a bomb going off. It's a bomb going off in the mind of his readers. It's a bomb going off on our consciences. Imagine for a minute. Imagine for a minute an episode of my mom's favorite TV game show. Wheel of Fortune. Bless her heart. She loved to watch wheel. You know, Pat Sajak, Vanna White, and you spin the wheel, and if you land in the right places, you get a, you get a guess letters to fill out this sentence. And if you get a little money, you can buy some vowels. And so let's imagine a game of Wheel of Fortune, and John the Apostle is the one who's playing. And he's been spinning, and he's been filling in this phrase... And uh, he gets all the way to the point where it says, in the beginning, blank. And he's thinking, yeah, I've, been, I've been pretty fortunate here. Not lucky, fortunate here. Uh, that, uh, that I haven't landed on, you know, lose a turn or bankruptcy. And I think what I'm going to do is stop and solve the puzzle. And, and, and everyone in the studio audience is going, I know this, I know this, I know this. In the beginning, blank. I know it, I know it, I know it. Everybody at home across America 
knows what's coming. We know, we know it. We know this one. We've got it. Pat Sajak knows this one. I, I know that Vanna White is over there, and she's not supposed to say anything, but she's saying, God, God, in the beginning, God. Everybody knows this one. John knows this one, and John says, in the beginning, word. Oh! John's right. John's right. In the place where God belongs, John puts word. Because the word is God. Amazing. Jesus is God. But there's more. Not only does John say that the word was God, he says that the word was with God. He was and was with. Now how can God be God and be with God? How can Jesus, how can the word be God and be with God? Well, it is a puzzle, isn't it? It is the mystery of the Trinity. It's a mystery to us. One indistinguishable God in three distinct persons. It, it's a little contradictory, isn't it? One indistinguishable God in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How are we to respond to this opening of John? We respond to the multifaceted majesty and glory of God with worship. With worship. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. In one verse, John's gospel explodes with the everlasting relationship between God the Father and God the Son as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be. And this is fascinating. Jesus the Word is the communication of God the Father. This Word is not just ink on a page. This Word is not just sound in the air. He's a person. The word is a he, and the he is a person. That's, that's personal communication. God does not communicate in an impersonal way. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before. Even at creation, before the world began, God communicated personally because his word is his son. His word is Jesus, his son. That means that what God was, Jesus was in the beginning. And what God is now, Jesus is now. We accept this because this is his word. We, we get that right off the surface. But John would have us to meditate on that and plumb the depths of its truth. Jesus is God and Jesus was with God in the beginning. And he is the living word of God at all times, in all ways. John repeats himself in verse 2. He, he, he connects it to the beginning again. He, the word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is the word through whom the whole world was made. In whom is life, and who is the light of all comprehending. Let's take creation first, as John emphasizes Jesus as the word of God in the beginning. The connection between the word and Genesis chapter 1 is apparent, isn't it? God spoke his word for six days, and everything came into being just as he spoke it. That's Genesis chapter 1. There is no other force at creation, no other bang that can take credit. Genesis chapter 1 runs on the power of the word. God speaks his word and things come into being and each thing God speaks is good and the whole thing put together that God speaks is very good and Jesus is that word. So God the Father, through the Son, is responsible for everything that is. So it makes total sense that life is in Jesus. In him was life. The power that animates every living thing, and it does so directly, immediately. There is no random process. There is no natural selection. There is no evolution that produced life. Life is in Jesus, which is good news. It means we can trust him. In him was the life. And the life was the light of men. John writes, here's, here's, a, here's a further connection of Jesus with the beginning. On the first day of creation, remember, God said, let there be light. And there was light. The life that is inherent in Jesus is the source of this light to men. Specifically, life in Jesus is the source of light. The light by which we see and perceive and understand. That's the light that he's talking about. The life that is in Jesus shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. The word translated overcome can also be translated comprehend. In fact, I think John means to communicate both. Darkness cannot comprehend the light of life. And darkness cannot overcome the light of life. Later in John chapter 8, Jesus will stand up and declare... I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When he says that, the Pharisees will reject him because he can, they cannot comprehend what he's saying. Even when they kill the light, they won't overcome the light because he will rise. So in five verses, John lays out these deep and amazing eternal truths. We, we kind of want to simplify them, right? Please make this easier for me. We want to simplify these truths, but John is trying to get us to meditate on them. Think about these things. He's going to explain more of them as he goes through his gospel. Think about their majesty, their complexity, their wonder, their glory. Jesus is the Son of God, the Word through whom... The world was made, in whom is life, and who is the light of all understanding. 
Jesus is awesome. And our only response, our only response is, is to worship him. To worship him. Let me pick up in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So here John the Evangelist, our author, is introducing John the Baptist. Don't want you to get confused there. And both Johns are crystal clear on who the Baptist is. He's a man sent by God. Uh, the first prophet since Malachi, as far as we know. The Baptist is not the light. Rather, God has sent him to bear witness about the light with the hope and expectation that, that people would actually believe in this light through his witness. I mean, that's, that's our hope when we witness about the light, isn't it? When we tell people about Jesus, we want them to believe through our witness. And I think the evangelist is thinking here in terms of John the Baptist's ministry about the prophet Isaiah when he describes the Baptist's witness to Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah says that there's a darkness coming which will be Israel's Assyrian captivity. Right? They have been in, they have been in uh, disobedience to God for a long, 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 long time. He's going to bring the Assyrians to crush them and take them into captivity. That's the darkness that Isaiah is prophesying in Isaiah chapter 8. Then, in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah says that after that darkness is over, after that captivity is over, there will come a great light and a glorious way for you. And in the near term, that's fulfilled with them being released from captivity. Although things don't really go that well for the northern kingdom after that. But John is declaring the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. John the Baptist is declaring that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 8 and 9. Jesus is the light who is dawning and who will bring about the glorious restoration of his people on that final day in his kingdom. So John the Baptist relates to Jesus the way the moon relates to the sun. He reflects the light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John the Evangelist having first placed Jesus in the beginning, now he's going to place him at his advent in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I think these, these words, the true light which gives light to everyone, is often misunderstood. It's often misunderstood. Some understand it to be the light that enables people to believe. That's not what John's saying. It's not the light that enlightens the heart unto salvation that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter uh, 1. John is saying that the true light shines upon people, and it exposes whether they believe or don't believe based on their response. We can see this in the, in the very near context in John. in John. In John verse 10, John 1 verse 10, He, the true light, was in the world, and even though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. 
And his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. So John can make the same point using the, well, he does make the same point using the same words in chapter 3. When we get to chapter 3, uh, verses 19 to 21 read, and this is the judgment. This is not the enlightenment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. That's their response, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. That's their response. So that it may be clearly seen or comprehended, because that's what light does, that his works have been carried out in God. The fact that the world and his own people did not receive Jesus is why John is writing this gospel narrative, isn't it? Remember, he, he told us in chapter 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So these verses, 9, 10, 11, are, are critical because they, they set the stage for the reason John's writing this letter. Because the world didn't know. Jesus, his own people rejected Jesus. So John writes so that people would see, behold, know, comprehend, and, and follow Jesus. Yes, John saw this dark world reject his maker, right? He's, he's looking back. He's reflecting on earlier years as he's writing. But after Jesus' resurrection... John also so many who did believe in Jesus. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. John says that the one who received Jesus are the ones who believed in his name. In the context of these verses, that means they believe John the Baptist's testimony, that Jesus is God's promised light to the world. And those who received and believed in Jesus are born of God. Now, this is interesting. Think about this. In Exodus chapter 4, God calls Israel his firstborn. Remember, remember we're in the beginning, and we're talking about Jesus not being recognized. Uh, by his people. In Exodus chapter 4, God calls Israel his firstborn son. He refers to the nation, the collective, as that. And John has just explained in verse 11 that Israel did not receive Jesus. And yet, it is those who receive Jesus who are given the right to stand where Israel should have stood as children of God. This is an Old Testament, New Testament contrast. Those who believe in Jesus will stand as the children of God. John goes on to contrast the understanding of the children of God in the Old Covenant, born of Abraham, and the New Covenant, born of faith in Christ. Those who receive and believe in Jesus are born, he says, not of blood. That means not based on their genealogy. Doesn't matter who your parents are. Not of the flesh. Not based on your animal instinct, not based on mere base human passion or desire, not by the will of man. I think in 
This is still in man, but in contrast to passion, I think this, this means by human reason or wisdom, but rather by regeneration. They're born again of God. They are first born again by the life that is in Jesus and then receive the light to comprehend, to see Jesus and believe in him. That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus later in chapter 3. Jesus tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again first, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't understand because he hasn't been born again yet. And so he tells Jesus, how can a man be born again when he's old? And Jesus answers him saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So God must do the work of regeneration in a soul first before they will believe and repent. Brothers and sisters, this is why our evangelism is so often fruitless. We must pray asking God to quicken and regenerate souls. God must born them again so that by faith, their faith would come by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We must pray for God to bring the dead to life. That's Ephesians, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 2. You are dead in your transgressions and sins, but God brings you to life in Christ Jesus. We need the Word who is life to bring light and life to souls in darkness that they may behold His glory and believe in Him by faith. It's the glory of God in Christ that John then goes on to explain when we go into verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So now John places the word at his incarnation and and he names him, right? He says, this is Jesus. This is Jesus Christ. And John's gospel will shine light for us to understand what it means for the word to become flesh, for the word to dwell among us, and for us to see the glory of the Father in the Son. But I want you to listen to Sinclair Ferguson's description of this, of Jesus' humble incarnation. Jesus, who is the eternal word of God, dwelled in the presence of his heavenly Father, Surrounded by angels, archangels, cherubim, and seraphim, whoever dwelt in that thrice holy place, were creatures who have never sinned, feel in their beings the intensity of the purity of God. That we are told they, they veil their faces and their feet, although they have never sinned, they sensed in their creatureliness and in their dependence the purity of God, and they give expression, just as Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6, they give expression to the sheer intensity of the goodness and love and truthfulness and holiness of God. 
Here is the wonder of the incarnation, of the one who was able to gaze into the face of his father without mediation and who dwelt with his father. That word has become flesh and dwelt among us. It's unimaginable to us what Jesus' condescension was really like. We can't fully understand his glory, his perfection, his joy. Just as we can't understand exactly what our sin must be like to him. John wants us to imagine the unimaginable. What a blessing it is to us to have him dwell among us. When the Word was born in flesh, the Word did not stop being Word, right? He's still Word. He is divine nature. And so His divine nature took on human nature, still as one person. He is both God and man. The Word was born as flesh. One person with two distinct but inseparable natures. You probably already know that the word translated dwelt is the word also for tabernacle. It has always been God's will to dwell with his people. And we'll see in John's gospel that Jesus is the fulfillment of that will. He has come to dwell among us, and he will actually be the fulfillment of that tabernacle, of that temple and its ministry. And then John returns to the Baptist, at least parenthetically. You'll remember that John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, was born six months earlier than Jesus, and yet the Baptist says that Jesus came before him and that Jesus ranks above him. And here he is, a prophet of God. So pointing to Jesus, he's pointing to Jesus being in the beginning, just as John has said, pointing at his eternality and his deity, and then the fullness of his grace. So Jesus is the very fullness of the glory of God from whom we receive grace upon grace. And I think John's referring to the grace given to the people of God under the Old Covenant being added to and surpassed by the grace God gives to his people in Christ. I think that's why we get the, the law was given, but Christ is given afterwards. I think that's what he's referring to. We receive grace upon grace. John's not knocking the law. The law is a gracious gift of God. But Christ is better. Remember in Exodus when Moses wanted to see the glory of God, but he could only see a little bit. He could only see a little bit of God's glory or else he would die. But now, God has given us the fullness of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a gracious gift. He is the perfect representation of God. Having come from the Father's side, picture that for a moment. Okay, the Father and Son, together, intimate, and at complete ease and comfort with one another. And Jesus is reclining at his Father's side. 
They're enjoying this Trinitarian fellowship. Now picture this. Later in John chapter 13, in the upper room, John, our author, the disciple, is reclining at Jesus' side. At the Last Supper, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining at Jesus' side. You see, I think that John is communicating is that Jesus was comfortable and intimate and close with the Father. So the disciples were, were close and comfortable and intimate with Jesus. And so that's how it's to be with us as well. We're to be comfortable, intimate, close in this word who gives his life for us. It's personal. It's intimate. It's loving fellowship. Which means to be a believer is no small thing. It's no small thing to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to come face to face with Jesus and therefore face to face with the Father. It is to see the glory of the Father in the glory of the Son. Because God wants to be with us. Jesus came straight from the Father's side. And he calls us to come to his side. Do you see? Could we possibly hope for any better access to the Father than what Jesus provides? Jesus, who has spent eternity with his Father, who is the beloved Son at the Father's side, who has the same character as the Father, and who is the communication of God's work and will, he who is God and was with God in the beginning, he has made God known. This word demands a response. Receive both John's testimonies. John the Evangelist and John the Baptist. Believe in Jesus and have eternal life that is in Jesus. See the light that comes from life in him and comprehend the love of God for you in Christ's sin-atoning death and life-giving resurrection and worship him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, cause us to behold the glory of Jesus, only begotten of the Father, word before all worlds, light that gives life, fullness of grace and truth, Son revealing His Holy Father, to whom be all glory forever. Amen.